0: Hello and welcome to episode 47 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in San Francisco. I'm Nathan Fox. With me in Washington, D.C. is Ben Olson. How you doing, Ben?
1: Good. I've been waiting for you to be in L.A., but I realize that your class is on Tuesday night, right?
0: Yeah, I taught last night. I I teach tonight. I was was in L.A. over the long weekend. I'll be in L.A. for most of December, so we'll get to say that. Um, (laughs) We'll get to say that sometime soon. You made me interested. Now I can't stop thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. I'm looking forward to spending December there. Uh, you know, it's, it just, we just finally got to fall here in San Francisco now that it's November summer is over and it got kind of cold again. I got the heater on in my apartment and, um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, getting down to some of the sunshine in the month of December. Yeah. Should be good. Um, Today, on episode 47, we have a whole bunch of stuff to talk about. Uh, Ben, you have an update on some accommodation stuff from some Mm -hmm. students that are in your current classes. I'm interested to hear uh, about that. We're going to do one question from the June 2007 uh, LSAT. We're going to talk about some logical reasoning. Then we have a whole bunch of issues from listeners. I don't think I'm even going to go into all of these uh, details at the top of the show, but just we've got... We got like five different emails from listeners that we're going to go over, so we'll try to knock those out. Um, But let's dive right in, I think. Uh, What's up with the accommodation stuff?
1: Yeah, so in episode 43, we talked to uh, Mika about her accommodations request and the challenges that she faced to get accommodations, and she ended up getting a time and a half, and Uh, The the big reason we were talking with her was because I think it was a Ninth Circuit court decision. Is that right? I don't even remember. Okay. Well, in any case, the the LSAC lost a court case uh, regarding accommodations. Basically, their accommodations or getting accommodations was very strict and too tough, at least according to a lot of people. And so the big question was, what's going to happen now? And... I've found it very interesting that in my current classes, there are at least four people who have applied for accommodations and gotten them. Um, I've just never had that many people who have gotten accommodations. Uh, usually it's maybe one person every other test, you know? And it's like, oh, you got accommodations. Well, let's talk about what you should do differently. Um, so, four people uh, getting it and getting it very fast. I mean, these people came to me at the beginning of class and said, hey, I've been thinking about applying for accommodations. Is this something I should do? And I said, like I always said before, well, um, if you've gotten it in the past, you could apply, but you might not get it. That said, things have changed, so I don't know what the situation is. And all of them applied and got it, or at least... Uh, Most of them applied and got it. I think there might have been someone else who decided not to apply. but um, And they got it really fast. They said they applied, and then within a few days, LSAC had gotten back to them and said, yep, you have accommodations, you have time and a half, and so now they're going forward to uh, prepare for that scenario. I I guess I'm just surprised because it sounds like it's a really easy process now. And... (laughs) Even with this announcement on this podcast, I imagine the number of people applying for accommodations will increase. There is no downside to applying for accommodations because they no longer tell the law schools that you got accommodations. And so I'm just curious how many people, what percentage of people are now going to get accommodations? This is going to become a new norm, I feel. I mean, still for a very small group of test takers, but I don't know. Just anecdotally, I'm surprised.
0: Wow, um, it's to me this is simultaneously very good news and very bad slash weird news. Yes, you know, I um, I don't know really much about learning differences. I, I I have no no training in this area. I should probably go get some training in this area. Uh, I'm happy that people who have a disability can get accommodated. You know, if we were talking about accommodations for the blind, I would be like, no-brainer. Absolutely. This is nothing but good news. Mm-hmm. So good, you know, for people who deserve these accommodations, fantastic. That's, that seems awesome to me. Um, on the other hand, I feel like the accommodations themselves are so powerful that this is an unfair advantage for the people who do get the accommodations And the reason why I say that is that I've had tons of students who have gotten accommodations in the past and every student in my experience who gets accommodations ends up scoring above the mean. They end up sometimes dramatically above the mean. Mm -hmm. So a student getting time and a half and now all of a sudden they're scoring 165, 170, 175, what? Like pushing 180 when Mm -hmm. they're getting time and a half. so I'm very confused about this it's and I'm very torn about this as much as I want to be well you know me Ben I'm super sensitive so (laughs) I as much as I want to be sensitive to these differences and uh, whatever I mean I do I consider myself to be like a relatively progressive person I've lived in San Francisco for 15 years I mean I'm like uh I'm not uh, like a A hick you know i'm i'm trying to be a progressive thoughtful citizen of the world so i would like to accommodate the differences but i also would not like to totally screw all of the people who are not getting these accommodations um time and a half is just an unbelievable advantage on the lsat
1: oh for sure
0: so i don't get it I think I have the
1: exact same sentiments. I'm feeling like, okay, I'm not an expert. If I were much more versed in this field and I could see how more obvious certain disabilities or learning differences are, I don't know. Um, I'm not even sure of the right words to use. Uh, I might have a lot more, I might have a much different opinion on this issue, but I also feel like, and this is kind of what I was talking with uh, Mika about is that I feel like a lot of people have learning differences and some have not been identified as such. They're just unknown. And so people struggle with those just because they're human. And then they're not being accommodated for that. So it's like if you're going to accommodate for these things and you have to accommodate for everything. So I'm kind of sympathetic to the way LSAC did it before which was look we're going to be really strict and just kind of assume that the best playing field or the most level playing field is to do nothing because everyone has different challenges yeah whether that's with reading comprehension or whatnot and it's hard to say how much of that is related to how much they've studied, and how much of that is related to some inherent way of their thinking yeah. process, which, which may just be a learning difference. I, I, you know, I, Again, I don't know much about it, but that's my gut reaction right now.
0: Yeah, and not to mention, I mean, it's a good point that there are people out there with undiagnosed learning differences, and well, let's be honest. The people who have undiagnosed learning differences or disabilities tend to be poorer. Mm-hmm. They tend to be browner. They tend to come from uh, background they, backgrounds where their parents didn't go to Stanford, and so what are we doing here? We're we're leveling the playing field so that the 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 people who have <laughs> already had the advantages enough to have had their parents take them to the fancy doctors now these are because the, the, those are the people that are getting the accommodations. It's not the people who there are people out there who are undiagnosed, who have just no idea that they even have this problem. And yeah, those tend to be, those tend to be the less advantaged people to begin with. Yeah. So I don't know. It's just, it's freaking me out because I'm, I'm seeing frankly rich kids um, coming in with these diagnoses and getting, you know, Oh no, I don't have 35 minutes per section. I have 52 minutes per section.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: 53. 53 <laughs> minutes per section. Yeah. And, uh and, um yeah, you know, and then, the, and then like, what'd you do on your last practice test? Oh, I got a 175. Holy shit. Mm-hmm. Wow. Boy, good thing we leveled the playing field. Yeah. I don't know. I Whatever. I'm sure that I'm offending people left and right with every word I say. <laughs> I'm really sorry for offending you. You're not the first person that I've offended on the show. You're not the last person that I'm going to offend on the show. But, um, I don't know, I wish somebody would explain this to me because I'm having a really hard time understanding how this is fair. Yeah, I get that we're pursuing fairness, and I'm all for pursuing fairness. But this just doesn't seem that fair to me. Um, I do have, a, I think, a solution, or <clears throat> um, I have a, a proposal, which I, I would love to to talk about. But why don't they just make the test untimed to begin with?
1: Yeah, that would be... That would be an interesting uh, test. I mean, they'd have to make they'd have to stock it with a lot more difficulty four and five questions on a scale of you know one to five. But I think that would be interesting because hey, look, you have all the time in the world go at it. Think about this a lot. Think about what you think is wrong with that argument or whatever. These are hard questions. They're nuanced. But even when you have all the time in the world, some people are definitely still not figuring those out. And so it would Be a different uh, game.
0: Yeah, I do think they would have to make it significantly harder. Otherwise, there would be too many people with perfect scores, Mm -hmm. Um, which, you know, then they wouldn't get the curve and they wouldn't be differentiating people anymore. Maybe they shouldn't differentiate people at the top, top of the range anyway. You know, maybe there shouldn't be, like, maybe it's like once you get to 170, who gives a shit what your score is?
1: Yeah, which is probably kind of what's happening, right? In a little, in some ways. I mean, when law schools look at these numbers, I think they are making distinctions between maybe 170 and 175, but not much between.
0: Well, there haven't been that many scores over 175, you know, that that just used to be super rare. Mm -hmm. Um, As they continue giving more and more accommodations, I would imagine that either there are going to be more 175s Mm -hmm. or they're going to just naturally have to make the test harder. Yeah. Right. In order to still get themselves the curve.
1: They're gonna have to balance it out somehow, right? Because they
0: got they got to get the same bell curve every time. And I mean, my students who have scored 175 or higher are heavily weighted in the people who have gotten accommodations. All right, yeah, freaking myself out. This is this is like the accommodations apocalypse, a (laughs) comma apocalypse. We got zombies and now we have
1: uh, accommodations we got to worry about. So here's the, here's the thing. Um, the flip side of this, and I'm assuming you'd probably agree with me, is if someone came to you and asked you, should they apply for accommodations? Absolutely. Do it, right? Like, we're, we're not saying this is wrong, so don't do it. Like, if you have the opportunity, take advantage of it just because you should take advantage of every opportunity available to you that's legit.
0: I'm gonna and start printing out the virtually. application forms and just handing them out to every student I work with. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's like, here, would you like a chance at an unfair advantage on the test? Here you go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> unfair advantage application form. <laughs>
0: That's uh, what I should say. Uh, at the top. Now we're just pissing off more people. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm making a joke. I'm sorry. So we
1: are, there's definitely some people who should be getting accommodations. We're just worried that the number of people who are getting them is going to be substantially higher and it's going to open the floodgates for those who probably should not be getting
0: them. And I'm worried about the people that have these exact same issues, but they just haven't ever been diagnosed. Either they haven't been diagnosed or
1: psychology or medicine has yet to identify these as learning differences, right? And so... They're just like, oh well, I don't have anything that's currently classified or quantified as such, and so I don't get any accommodations, but in reality it is. Eventually
0: everyone's I- gonna go to like the, the doctor and then the doctor's gonna tell you how much time you deserve on the LSAT. Everybody's gonna get a different amount of time on the LSAT because everybody's different. So it's they're gonna like do some brain scans and then they're gonna tell you how much time you should you should have to take the test. Yeah, that's a a good uh, argument for the the untimed test. Yeah, well, I have a a buddy who's a high school administrator, and uh, he's, you know, of course, um, he's like all up on all of the testing stuff and all of the accommodation stuff. And it it seems to be, he seemed to suggest to me, this was a year or two ago, but he was suggesting to me that this seems like the the way that that it needs to go, that that's like sort of a sensible solution is just, well, why are you timing people on this in the first place? Nobody in real life is ever timed on a, you know, if even at your job or even at at court or whatever, I mean, if you want to burn the midnight oil, you can burn the midnight oil, right? Yeah. So if, if you have a deadline that you're working up against, the deadline is usually a couple weeks out or a month out or whatever. Yeah. And if you want to work all day and all night on it, you absolutely can. So what's the point of this like arbitrary 35 minutes per section? I don't know. We might be talking ourselves out of a job here, Ben. (laughs) What are you going to do? What would you do if you were not an LSAT teacher? What would you do?
1: Oh, what would I do? You know, um, I would probably, this sounds, I don't know. I'd probably buy uh, real estate. Real estate. Real estate investor. Yeah. Try to get myself to basically shore up uh, capital that I can kind of step away from. That someone else can manage, and show that I would have over time less and less work to do. Interesting. You know, uh, talking about, and I know this is maybe a moot point because it's it's not the reality right now. But I this uh, for this particular class, I put together a packet of logical reasoning questions that were all difficulty four, so not difficulty five, but difficulty four, for people to uh, to work through, and. Um, a, a lot of people, I said, look, just take your time with these, try to understand them, try to understand why the right answers are right, the wrong answers are wrong. And some people come back and say, "said hey, look, I went through them and I got only one wrong. So it took me a long time, but I was really trying to understand them. And then there are definitely other people who, maybe they went too fast, but they they were getting questions wrong. And they were saying, look, these are hard questions. Even when I sit here and think about this, I'm, I'm not too sure which one is the right or wrong answer. And then after, you know, they figure it out and so on. But um, it's, it's evidence that, look, just a harder set of questions would work. It's not true that if you get more time, you'll necessarily ace the test if the questions are harder.
0: Yeah, no, there are questions on the test that are so difficult that, um, you know, even you... Uh, and I would have a hard time like really fully grasping it with Mm -hmm. unlimited time right I mean I'm sure you've got your five or ten questions in the history of the LSAT where you kind of just scratch your head and go boy (laughs) I know I know which answer is the credited answer but it's very hard for me to really kind of articulate why and that you might have missed it you know in in time even with unlimited time you might have missed it so I think that's true for just about everybody yeah Um, but I guess they would just, if they decided to really move toward this untimed thing, which it seems like they might be doing in baby steps, um, they would have to put more of those on the test in order to really, like, differentiate. Yeah. Um, wow. Okay, well, uh, we definitely welcome email. Uh, you can send hate mail directly to me, Nathan <laughs> at foxlsat.com. Or me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't, know, I don't know if you've really offended anybody yet. Yeah, um, i like to leave that to you. Yeah, that's my job. Um, but no, uh, help at thinkinglsat.com. If you have you know, information that would help to shed light on this issue, I don't think this is the last time we're going to talk about it. So uh, send us email and, uh, or questions or whatever, and we will uh, bring it back on the show. Yeah. Should we uh, dive into one of these logical reasoning questions? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. So this is the June 2007 LSAT. Once again, this is the only free LSAT that's out there uh, legally. Anyway, you can Google June 2007 LSAT and you'll immediately find a link to the LSAC website and to the PDF of the June 2007 test. We are looking at Section 2, which is logical reasoning. We're very slowly working our way through this section talking about the questions one at a time. And we have made it to question number 10. So Ben, you wanna uh, read the argument here?
1: Sure. So the argument starts out by saying, double blind techniques should be used whenever possible in scientific experiments. Any reactions to that?
0: Yeah, I wanna say why.
1: Yeah, why?
0: Why? Should is a bad word on the LSAT. Should is or it's it's like it it should stick out to you, mm-hmm. and what I always say in class because I like to be super offensive. What I like to say in class is, um, "Don't fucking tell me what to do." When I say <laughs> when I see should, mm-hmm. I say, "Who are you to tell me what to do?" Don't fucking tell me what to do. So I would immediately assume that this is the conclusion of the argument.
1: I agree. Now, could should be in the premises. Yes, could. Should, could be in the premises. <laughs> yes, certainly could, but often it's not, right? It sounds like a conclusion, but just wanted to point that out so people don't think, oh, should, this is the conclusion.
0: No, it's probably not. Probably is. Right, it's not an absolute thing. Just like, I mean, therefore doesn't have to be the conclusion of the argument. Yeah. Right? It's mm-hmm. a nice clue that it would probably be the conclusion of the argument, but um, they can use the word therefore in a premise or in an intermediate conclusion. Um yeah, but the word "should" if they're gonna if they're gonna make a recommendation, right? If they're gonna tell people what should happen, nine times out of ten,
1: mm-hmm.
0: ninety-nine times out of a hundred, maybe. I mean, pretty frequently, that's gonna turn out to be the conclusion of the argument.
1: Yeah. By the way, I just wanted to clarify one thing you just said. I I I, I know what you were, I think, trying to say, but it may be interpreted slightly different when you were talking about the word "therefore." Uh-huh. You said um, it can be used as a, you know, to introduce a premise, and that's absolutely correct. If it's an intermediate conclusion, but it does always introduce a conclusion. The issue is we just don't know whether it's the main conclusion or the. Sure.
0: Yeah. I guess I should have said that. Yeah. I said it's a premise, and I said it's an intermediate conclusion. There, I meant both of those simultaneously. <laughs> yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah. Cool. Okay.
0: So uh, then, it,
1: so the question is why? Why should double-blind techniques be used whenever possible in scientific experiments. And if they answer that, then that's probably the main conclusion. Yeah, that is
0: my, my first, my very first response is just, oh yeah, why would you say that? Yeah. And then if they answer that, then that, yeah, then that indeed would be the conclusion of the argument. All right, cool.
1: Cool. They help prevent the misinterpretations that often arise due to expectations and opinions that scientists already hold. And clearly scientists should be extremely diligent in trying to avoid such misinterpretations. So, yeah, those are two reasons why they should be used. So we just saw the main conclusion at the beginning and then two premises.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think that the first sentence is the conclusion of this argument. There is that one word in there. You know, if you were not really reading this critically enough, like if you were trying to cheat the test, Yeah. Matter of fact, if you were reading the question stem first, I think you could totally fuck yourself right here.
1: Yeah, what were you looking at? Clearly. Yeah. (laughs) Right?
0: I mean, clearly is a word that people would say is a trigger word for the conclusion of the argument. Yeah. And if I read the question stem first here and it was like, oh, all I'm looking for is the conclusion. Skim the argument. I see clearly. Mm -hmm. Scientists should be extremely diligent in trying to avoid such misinterpretations. Uh, and it has
1: the word should in there. So people are thinking, oh, this is oh, hard. Yeah, and conclusion.
0: should again. Yeah. Let's see, is there an answer choice that says that? I'm trying to oh, see. I'm sure should. there will be.
1: Because there's only there's only three three statements here, right? So we're probably gonna get both premises in the wrong answers.
0: Right, I would assume. Yeah.
1: By the way, I do want to point out one more thing before we jump into that. You're absolutely right about it. clearly it's a total distraction. The other thing here is the word and. Which uh-huh. comes in between the two premises? Uh-huh. I, almost, I often point out to people that that's almost always an indication that what came before the and and what came after the and are premises. Both premises, because yeah. they're saying it's the and is saying that both of those things are essentially on the same level. Which you're not going like to have to supporting the other, and you're not going to
0: have two, well, you're not going to have like two main conclusions of the argument, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So if those are so, on the same level, then they're they're probably both premises. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. Cool. So let's. So the question is, which one of the following most accurately expresses the main conclusion of the argument? We've already pinpointed that as the first sentence. So we're just looking for something that says double-blind techniques should be used whenever possible in scientific experiments. Yeah. And the wrong answers will almost certainly be other parts of the argument, which would include these two premises and then. I usually notice that there are like inferences that you might infer from this argument, but not specifically the main conclusion. Do you have anything else that you notice?
0: Um, I just would want to make it clear that before we go on to the answer choices on a main conclusion question, it is really critical that you, you make a prediction here. Yeah. If, I mean, if you don't know going in that the answer is double-blind techniques should be used whenever possible in scientific experiments. You're going to have a hard time with the answer choices because they're going to just regurgitate everything that was in the argument. Some of the answers are going to just be like put all the words in the argument in a blender and then just like barf out just a bunch of words, you know, and it's like now you're like trying to figure out what the answer choices mean and that kind of stuff. And we say this all the time, but I think it bears repeating that the way we get through the section in an efficient manner is that we just don't spend that much time on the answer choices, right? Especially on a main conclusion question. Yeah. They asked us what the conclusion is. We know what the conclusion is. Matter of fact, we knew what the conclusion is after the reading the first sentence of the argument, we already knew what the conclusion was, or we had a really strong suspicion. Yeah. But even if we hadn't had that suspicion, when they say, what's the main conclusion, we're going to cover up the answer choices. You know, and we're going to say, well, okay, we, we, yeah, here's what the main point was. Okay, now let's go into the answer choices and really pretty quickly just skim through and find the one.
1: Yeah, this is something I've been saying a lot in class recently, uh, partly because of our discussions and our uh, obsession with it. But I've been telling people you should imagine a big black line that is in between answer choice A and the question itself. And you should not go below that line until you've done a certain amount of preparation depending on the
0: question type. You're talking right? about above answer choice A, right? Yeah, I mean,
1: sorry, above answer choice A. Yeah, like you, th- There should be a, a wall there, and you should not be going down into the answer choices because that seems to be the gut reaction of the vast majority of test takers, especially when they get started, right? It's like read 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 okay yeah. let's see who how, what do i think about a or like they're like scanning looking for things and they're like well is it c and it's like yeah hold up i don't i can't even tell you cuz i don't even i haven't even done i haven't even finished analyzing the
0: argument so the, the question i can't mark, say with any confidence the question mark like that's the stop sign yeah we should get some, somebody out there with photoshop skills or graphic skills make us a make us a stop sign with the question mark where it's like yeah. to make it clear, you know, that the I, I, I love that. I love the black line idea it, when, when I'm working with one-on-one private students, I do like take my hand or a note card or a piece of paper or whatever, and just cover up the answer choices. Yeah. There's there so yeah. many times where if you didn't, the answer choices will frequently make it harder. So let's make it easy on ourselves by not looking at the answer choices too quickly. And it's like even just five percent too quickly, and you can end up spending twice as much time on this question as you would if you don't. If you if you just take that pause, right? Yeah. Take the breath, make a good prediction, especially on a main conclusion question.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. Cool.
1: So answer choice A says scientists' objectivity may be impeded by interpreting experimental evidence on the basis of expectations and
0: opinions that they already hold. Um, what do you think about this? Well, it's part of the argument. Yes. But I think it's a premise of the argument. Yeah. It doesn't say anything about double-blind techniques. Nope. Double-blind techniques were what we were looking for. Yeah. Uh, it also doesn't say should. Mm-hmm. You know, we need, you should use double-blind techniques when you're doing science. Yeah. That's just not what A says.
1: Nope. Okay. I agree. It's out. Yep. B, it is advisable for scientists to use double blind techniques. Good. In as high a proportion of their experiments as they can. So this is great. This is um this is where they took the word should, right? And they
0: replaced it with a synonym. It is advisable. Uh what do you think? Yeah, I mean, even if that's not quite a synonym but it's whatever it's close enough right i mean yeah yeah, you're right it's it's subtle shift in meaning but not a not a big enough shift to make a difference Mm -hmm. Um, this is a good idea that's very similar to this is something we should do i advise you to it is advisable for scientists to use double blind techniques which we absolutely had to have in the correct answer yeah I guess suppose they could have come up with a synonym for that, but that'd be kind of <laughs> that'd be kind of tough. I think that's the only way they can make these
1: questions hard, right? Yeah. To make point questions is like rewrite the the conclusion using different words that mean the same thing yeah. as the original conclusion.
0: Yeah. In as high a proportion of that matches whenever possible. Yep. And in experiments, scientific experiments. Yeah, perfect. I mean, the answer is going to be B.
1: Yeah. So, let's just see what's wrong with CD&E. Uh, scientists sometimes neglect to adequately consider the risk of misinterpreting evidence on the basis of prior expectations and
0: opinions. Mm, mm, that, I don't even think that was part of the argument. I don't think that was said. Yeah, okay. I guess they said misinterpretations
1: that often arise. But yeah, either way, it's either some sort of weird restatement of a premise or... Yeah. But it's not the main conclusion. I don't so ever
0: remember them getting inside the head of scientists, you know, yeah. like whether they're whether or not they are considering this risk. I don't know. It's just that it yeah. doesn't seem like it was the argument.
1: No, I, I agree. Okay. I, the whenever possible, scientists should refrain from interpreting evidence on the basis of previously formed expectations and convictions. A premise of the argument? This is a premise of the argument. So the second premise, right? The should and so on. Yeah. Um, e, double-blind experimental techniques are often an effective way of ensuring scientific objectivity.
0: Uh, okay. Second best answer? Yeah. Um, the one thing that it's missing there is really the should. Yeah. And the should, that was the fourth word of the argument and I like I knew after I read that fourth word I knew that the that was there they were trying to prove should right and I was like yeah. don't tell me what to do and E's not telling me what to do so I don't see how E's the conclusion of the argument
1: Nope. I think they're hoping that you'll assume that if something's effective then you should do it but that's an assumption not what it
0: was said so this is an interesting one um here too it's You know, frequently a good reason to get rid of an answer on a main point question, because main point questions are like a subcategory of must be true. Okay. You could frequently get rid of answers that are too strongly worded. I think it's interesting to note here that B is actually stronger than E. But B is the right answer and E is the wrong answer. Right, is almost like a mm-hmm. e's almost like a like a necessary assumption of the argument.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you consider conclusion questions as sort of part of the must be true category. Because yeah. I guess I would just kind of think of them as well. I think of them as structure questions and like role questions.
0: Or, I think those are also must be true questions.
1: Yeah, when I'm so in a must be true question, I'm looking for obviously content is way more important than the the word strength of the answers. But in general, you want answers that are weaker. Whereas in um, these types of questions, which I would classify a little bit differently, I think I'm looking for precise or matching language. So if the if the conclusion is strong, then I want strong language. If the conclusion is weak, I want weak language, and so on. So that's
0: no, I agree. I agree. But what what I'm saying, I'm I'm coming around to this idea that like half the questions on the LSAT can be thought of under the umbrella of must be true. And which is to say that if the answer goes further than what the facts went, then it's just immediately wrong. Like immediately 100% wrong. And so I put must be true questions, main conclusion questions, strategy questions role questions law questions even i put those mm-hmm. all under the must be true umbrella where all it takes is one word that's stronger than what the facts actually said
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then it then that is immediately 100 percent wrong so and so but i think that does apply to main conclusion questions you can't go stronger than what the argument actually said that's all I mean. Yeah. But here... Um, so on a must-be-true, on a, on a main point question, I'm thinking we're looking for something that must be true and also is the main conclusion of the argument. So even if E must be true according to the argument, mm-hmm. although I don't like the word ensuring, so I think that actually makes it not a must-be-true, but even if E were must-be-true, it would have to also be the main conclusion, and it's not. So, so B is must be true according to the argument because it exactly matches uh, yeah. the argument and it matches the main conclusion, so it is the main conclusion of the argument.
1: Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I uh, I guess I'm...
1: I, I I see what you're saying and I, I think um, we're kind of thinking about it... I mean, I'm classifying it a little differently. Uh, I, I think of... Um, a big portion of the, the, the logical reasoning section are what I would call problem questions. So that would include flaw, strengthen, weaken, necessary assumption, sufficient assumption, in the sense that your main goal is to figure out the problem with that argument. And then when you're going through the right. answer choices, oftentimes, with the exception of necessary assumption, you're looking for strong language because stronger evidence is going to do more to either help or
0: hurt that argument. Right, but not on flaw questions. See, because what I, I guess,
1: no, I agree. And so, so actually, flaw questions because you're being you're asked to describe exactly what's happened. You want a very precise right. answer. So I, I sort of have these three levels. I have answer choices in which you want strong language, answer choices in which you want weak language, and then answer choices where you want very precise language, what you want to match exactly, and I think that precise language answer choices are the ones that you're you're putting over into what I would consider the sort of like the weak language, right? Like it can't go further than right. what was said.
0: I, I think there's going to be, the, there's, I have multiple different ways of thinking about it, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but one thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently with regard to the logical reasoning is just that there are ans- there are types of questions that are purely evidence-based and then there are types of questions that are asking you to change the argument.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So that's, and this is the difference between a flaw question and a weakened question. Yeah, mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. a flaw question is evidence-based, what did the argument do? And if the answer goes 1% further than what the argument actually went, then you can't say that that was a flaw that's inherent in the argument, and that's a wrong answer.
1: Mm-hmm. So there's
0: mm-hmm. that's why I'm, I'm sort of, maybe saying it's a must-be-true question is, a, is a confusing things. But I do apply that sort of, Hey, we're looking for a flaw that's inherent in the argument. That's kind of like a must be true where if it says the only reason why, well then boy, the argument had better have said, this is the only reason why or
1: Mm -hmm. else that Mm -hmm.
0: can't be the answer. Yeah. On the other hand, if this was a weakened question, it's like, which one, if true would weaken the argument and now Mm -hmm. the answer can't possibly be too strong. Yeah, because they are asking you to change the argument. So anyway, with the main conclusion question, they're clearly not asking you to change the argument. They're asking mm-hmm. you to, what was the what was in the argument. Yeah, and so then I'm I'm approaching that from sort of a must be true mindset. Does that make sense? I'm thinking of a binary kind of a thing where it's either yeah. must be true or it's not.
1: Yeah, I. I um... I see what you're saying.
0: I'm playing with sense. it. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm still. This is a half-baked idea, so, you know, we'll, we'll, we can evolve this one. Yeah. Cool. All right.
1: Well, so that was, uh, that was main point, and
0: that was good. Do you have anything else to say about that? No. That was question number ten from the June 2007 LSAT. Uh, we will do more of these down the road somewhere, and uh, just to be clear, the answer there was B for number ten of section two of the June 2007 LSAT. All right, cool. Cool. Um, All right, well, we got a mailbag here. We've got a whole bunch of emails from listeners. So let's just dive right into these. Um, Camilla says, uh, when looking at the LSAC calculator with the percentage that it shoots out, what ranges would you consider for reach, target, and safety that's the question what do we think yeah um (laughs) i guess she's specifically asking about the percentage i don't i don't know would you even think about it that way
1: i mean i guess that's that's the that's the number they they give you they give you a couple they give you three numbers they tell you they give you the range of the lsat score that are, that are typically admitted, I think, and then they show where your LSAT score is relative to that. So are you in that range? They do the same thing for GPA, and then they give you a likelihood range. So for example...
0: let's Yeah, let's it, do a hypothetical. So I just Googled it. I just yeah. went, um, and by the way, you can find it immediately if you just search for LSAT GPA calculator. The first thing yep. will be officialguide.lsac.org and it'll be an undergraduate GPA and LSAT score search. So just to make up some arbitrary numbers, let's say you did pretty good in your undergraduate. You got a 3.6. Hey, that's what I put in. Oh, and then let's say that you um, got accommodations on the LSAT and you scored a 175. (laughs) And let's see what that does. Wait, hold
1: on. The 175 is going to be pretty... That's gonna that's
0: gonna push a lot of the likelihoods up. Well, we'll just look at the top 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 schools. Okay, sure. Um, conti- so then you have to click through some legal mumbo jumbo. Yeah. Too many lawyers in the world. And then likelihood of success is not a guarantee of success, basically. <laughs> yeah. So, oh yeah, that that did push the numbers way up. But no, I mean if you go down and you look at like uh, you know the first one that you have not a almost certainty of getting into well even shit hey alabama interesting yeah um (laughs) with your 3.6 and your 175 the lsat tells you that you have oh i mean yeah because 3.6 is not that great at alabama well
1: here let's do one thing let's sort by likelihood from low to high oh shit i didn't even know you could do that yeah, see, say right below that. Oh,
0: uh, yeah. So up at the top, yeah, there's a little drop-down thing. Sort by likelihood. Wow. Whoa, wait a minute. Is Yale even in this thing? Must not be.
1: Some schools are not,
0: yeah. Oh, okay. I was going to say, if Harvard is number one least likely, then Yale must not even be. Yale is not participating for whatever reason. Yeah. Um... So here it says that your lowest likelihood school, and it gives you a between a twenty-three and thirty-three percent chance Harvard is your lowest likelihood school. Um yeah. So that would be what, either a reach school or a tar or a target school.
1: Yeah. Twenty-five yeah. percent or so, I'd say
0: I actually think that that's probably. I actually think that's probably like kind of the target school, though, right? I mean, assuming that you want to go to the to a to a good school or one of the better schools that you can get into, or at least that that's one strategy, is to get into the best school that you can get into. Um, you know, if you applied to eight schools where you had a twenty-five percent chance of getting into them, yeah, you'd end up with a pretty good chance of getting into one of those eight schools. So that would actually seem to be target. I think you're right, Ben. I think I put too high of a number. Want to make it 170 instead? Sure. Okay, so I'm changing that. 3.6 and a 170. Still sorted from low to high. Yeah. Okay. So now Harvard becomes a between four and 14% chance, and that mm-hmm. seems a lot more now like a reach school. Yeah. I don't know. I I'm so, I don't think we can answer um, Camilla's question exactly. I, mm-hmm. all I would say is um, you want to have some sort of a of a range, right? I mean, you want to have a portfolio. I like to think of it as like a portfolio of schools that you're applying to. Yeah. Because you just don't know where you're going to get in. The, there is no guarantee. I mean, we hear stories all the time of people not getting in, right, when you thought they would. Yeah. And people getting in when you thought they wouldn't. Yep. So I think it's important that you apply to a wide range. Um I also would really encourage people to apply to schools where they are when people say safety and and um, Camilla actually did use the word safety mm-hmm. in her um, in her question. I, I that I guess that's one way you could think about it. But another way you could think about it is um, a school that would be very likely to give you scholarship money. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people should be really thinking about trying to get scholarship money to go to law school. Yeah. Especially those who are not 100% sure of what they're going to do with their JD. Yeah. So, you know, this this student again to say like, okay, I have a 3.6 and a 170. That's a pretty good candidate for law school. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't insist on going to a top 14 school necessarily. This person can get in, you know. If this person applies to every school in the top 14, they're almost guaranteed to get into one of them, yeah, with their 3.6 and 170. But I would strongly consider dipping down the range a little bit here, you know. Why wouldn't you apply to USC where you have a 78 to 88% chance of getting in and where your LSAT score is significantly above? Their 25th and 70 above their 75th percentile,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, it, because my guess would be that USC would probably have some scholarship money for this candidate. Yeah, and if you're not 100 percent sure what you're gonna do with your JD, if you're not if you don't if you don't need to go um, to Columbia for your career purposes, and if SC is gonna let you go there for free. Uh, boy, that really lowers the risk of the financial risk of uh, yeah. this endeavor. And so rather than thinking about reach, target, and safety, I just would be thinking about, hey, I'm going to apply to a broad range of schools because then that's going to give me a broad range of offers mm-hmm. to consider.
1: Yeah, and if you do get to a school that's decent uh, but is willing to pay your way, you're probably going to end up being higher up in the class which could ultimately help your career even if that's you know even if you're thinking about going into big law or whatever
0: yeah there's you know you can be the small fish in the big pond or you can be the big fish in the small pond and uh, if if that's the choice um i just i just encourage people to uh, to kind of broaden their their uh, options there you know options Mm -hmm. are just never going to hurt you and if if all it cost you was a hundred bucks to do this extra application. I mean, we've talked about this. A lot of schools are waiving their application fees nowadays anyway. Um, If they're not gonna charge you an application fee, or even if they are, if it's only a hundred bucks or whatever to apply, but they might offer you 150 grand and that 150 grand that they offered you indicates that you're a really strong uh, candidate at that school, Mm -hmm. then yeah, you're gonna have a little easier time. Not that law school is gonna be easy, but you might have a better chance of competing for grades during your first semester and during your first year. And that's going to give you, if you do get good grades, that's going to give you all of the best opportunities that that school has to offer. And if you went to a higher ranked school where you barely got in, you're going to have a harder time competing for grades. Your class rank now is not as good as it would have been otherwise. All those on-campus interviews that they promised you Um, guess what they might only interview the top half of the class Mm -hmm. and you might not be in the top half of the class so yeah I just um, I don't think that there's any one right answer here yeah I agree Um, shit I don't know do you think we answered the question Um,
1: (laughs) technically no, but we could just come up with some percentages right now. So 27 to 42 is definitely for your uh, reach. Um, I'm just making this up. Never mind. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) it really, it it just, it's, it's going to depend on you. You also got to look at these numbers and think about how the rest of your application is going to skew them. Right, I think there's a range precisely because some people write really horrible personal statements and they don't really have anything to say or their experience is not so good. Um, granted, most people think that their experience is awesome when it's not, yeah. no offense. but um, So you don't want to overestimate that. But if, you, if you're thinking through this stuff and you are um, pretty good at selling yourself, then that can definitely boost these numbers
0: yeah selling yourself that's interesting. I've read a couple personal statements recently where the candidate was just absolutely not selling themselves. Hmm. you know like not in the personal statement where they were like sort of uh, had like a uh, like a negative tone about it. Yeah um, like or like a, um, talking about all the other all the stuff that they don't want to do with their life.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: instead of just talking about what they do want to do with their life. Yeah. I do think it's important. I mean, lawyers are advocates, right? Mm-hmm. And so you can think about your personal statement as kind of your first case or your, your your law school candidacy as your first case. And I think it's important in that personal statement that you um, that you advocate for yourself as best you can. It's difficult because people don't like to, you know, pump themselves up like
1: that yeah it's also hard too because if you do it directly it often falls flat but if you take a lesson from politicians politicians usually sell themselves by telling stories about themselves that sort of convey one message which is oh i'm telling you this story but that story happens to convey another underlying message like i'm confident i was able to save this company or whatever they're saying you know whatever their story
0: is It's the difference between showing and telling, you know, if you come in and you just like have a whole bunch of adjectives and adverbs and you're just, um, it's conclusory where all you're doing is just telling the reader how diligent you are. Mm -hmm. It's easy. Anyone can say that anyone can say, I am diligent. I am smart. I am blah, blah, blah. And that's not, that's not doing anything because people are going to be skeptical and people are going to read that and they're going to roll their eyes and they're going to say, sure you are. Of course Mm -hmm. you're going to say that yeah but if you start telling an anecdote from your life, it could be a job story, it could be a school story, it could be a family story, you know it could be almost anything and you then just where you're using like nouns and verbs and you're you're showing there's like action there's a story there. yeah For one, it's way more entertaining mm-hmm. And for two, the reader is then going to naturally come to conclusions about your character. Yeah. And when they come to the conclusion that you're diligent, then they really believe it. Yeah, And you do not need to ever say, I am diligent, because you've told a story that shows yourself being diligent, and then now they really get it, and they really buy it. Yeah, That's the one thing I wish I saw more of in personal statements, was just like, boy, tell me a story that shows me an aspect of your personality, instead of just claiming aspects of your personality. Yeah okay um apply to a wide range of schools um one point that i want to make i guess a little bit clearer is that if there if if you have a 25 percent chance of getting into a school um yeah okay you have a one in four chance of getting into that school but if you apply to a whole bunch of those the odds become very likely that you will get into one of those schools so you know they're not all reaches you just don't know which one you're going to get into. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, next question. We're going slow, like always. Uh, okay. I got two questions here about reviewing correct answers. These kind of confused me a little bit. Let me just read through the questions. So Jack says, as I work through practice, logical reasoning sections, should I spend time reviewing questions that I got correct? If so, should I give them the same amount of time as incorrect answers? Um, Beth asks the similar question. When reviewing explanations for the test questions I did, should I review all the questions I got right, review all the questions I got wrong? Should I look at the explanation of why the uh, answers that I didn't select were wrong? And she said something interesting here. She says, in past trade tests that I have done, I'm not sure exactly... Oh, um, she's a pilot and an aircraft mechanic.
1: Oh, okay. And Mm -hmm. I guess she
0: was preparing for these other exams. And she was encouraged not to review the wrong answer explanations because it could reinforce a wrong thought process. Whoa. So just says just by reading a pattern, you make it more normal, and after continually doing this, the wrong answer pattern seems like it could be a possibility. Uh, yeah, I responded that same way eh. what do you what do you mean?
1: Well, no, so I feel like understanding precisely why the wrong answer is wrong can illuminate the rule that makes that answer wrong and will make future answers wrong because. The set. a lot of times uh, people feel like two answers are very close and it's just a matter of degree. And that is true in some cases. But in other cases, their reason for why the wrong answer is wrong is just, oh, this answer is worse. And I'm saying, no, that answer could never work, even if you got rid of the
0: correct answer. Yeah, boy, I get that a lot in class. Like, well, but if B wasn't there, then D would be the answer, right? Yeah. I'm like, no, no, No. D sucks. And I'm going to tell you exactly why D sucks. Sorry, go ahead.
1: No, that's exactly it. There's usually some word or some phrase. And it's like this answer choice is talking about companies in general as opposed to these particular kinds of companies. And then everybody's like, oh, I can't believe I missed that. This is, <laughs> yeah. This is over. You know, it's like it's there's not even debate wrong. anymore. Yeah. People are debating certain words. Like, oh well, this the word many is a little stronger than some. So I think this is why this one's. And you're, if if that's the rule that you take away from that question, then you've just muddied the waters. Right yeah. now, you're going to be comparing things that are essentially the same logically,
0: and perpetuating myths. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Um, so, okay, so I certainly, you know, if you have a copy of my Logical Reasoning Encyclopedia, and if you're wondering whether you should read the explanations um, of the wrong answers, yeah, I mean, I think that sometimes that's the most valuable part of it, actually, is, uh, so, like, specifically for a flaw question, Mm -hmm. a lot of times the wrong answers on a flaw question are going to be describing other flaws. Yeah that are commonly tested. And in my explanations, I think you'll see me saying, well, in order for this to be the correct answer, the argument would have had to have said X, Y, Z. Mm -hmm. And I think that that can be really useful. Like it can help you to just get more familiar with all of the portfolio of common flaws. Um, yeah. So I would definitely read those, um, if you had time. I think understanding why the wrong answers are wrong is great. Now that said, sometimes the wrong answers are wrong because they're gibberish.
1: Certainly. I think it's especially when it comes down to the two that you're debating, right? And if you debate the, if you're debating the most tempting wrong answer, there's probably some little lesson in there that you can learn. Whereas some answers are just so weird or off
0: that
1: you're just like, yeah, it's wrong, but (laughs) I
0: don't know what it's talking about. Right. I certainly wouldn't shy away from reading explanations about wrong answer choices. I'll, I'll say that for sure. Yeah. Um, so then what do we think about this idea of should we review the questions that we got right?
1: Well my compromise to that is as you're going through this section, if you're not I feel like, I think we talked about this last time, like if you don't know whether or not the answer that you chose is 100% correct I mean maybe not 100% but you should be very confident for the vast majority of questions that you're the answers that you're choosing. So as you go through the section, if you're not totally sure that the answer is D, that's a sign that you should probably flag that question and review it later, even if you end up getting it right.
0: Yeah, I think that's fine. Because, um, well, we always hear the, like, I'm sure you hear this, um, you know, a few times a year at least, like, yeah, when I whenever I review my test, I had noticed that every time I narrow it down to a 50-50, I always choose the wrong answer. Yeah. Right. And we've talked about this before. That's clearly selection bias. The reason why you think you're always choosing the wrong answer is that you're only reviewing your mistakes. And so you look at the ones where you narrowed it down to a 50-50 or people. Similarly, people will say, every time I change the answer, I get it wrong. So I should just not change it. (laughs) Right. And it's like, well, no, because you're only reviewing your mistakes. So some of those mistakes are ones where you did change it to the wrong answer but you're not reviewing the ones where you changed it to the right answer. And so now you have this illusion that every time Mm -hmm. you change it or every time you narrow it down to a 50-50, you always miss it. And that's absolutely not what's happening. So, right, if if you're not sure about a question, then I do think you should flag it and review it. What do you think about the idea, though, of... Like, I had a student uh, just yesterday on Skype that I was talking to who um, said that he was blind reviewing every test... Essentially he does the test once timed. Yeah. Then he does it again blind untimed. And I don't he's telling me and by the way of course he's telling me that you know he scores nearly perfectly when he does it untimed or yeah. and, and it's like oh well maybe you should get accommodations that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, going back to that. Uh well I I feel like that's Sure. I think in some level, on some level that's helpful, but we're also balancing that against all the stuff that you can do out there. And your time you spend doing that is going to be time that you cannot spend on doing new questions. People do make the mistake of doing a section, not reviewing it, which we've talked about a lot, and then going on to the next one. So those people are doing too many questions without learning anything from the ones that they're doing. But this strikes me as someone who's doing... Too much with the questions that they have. Presumably,
0: a lot of them gotten right. You know? Yeah, I mean, we do. Yeah, we have to talk about efficiency. And if if efficiency is your number one goal, I mean, I could even say, hey, let's just only review your mistakes, right? If you really mm-hmm. had limited time, then yeah. do a section and review your mistakes. If you had a little more time, also review the ones that you weren't a hundred percent sure about but got right. Yeah. If you have unlimited time, then okay, fine. I guess you could go ahead and, you know, write an academic treatise about why the right answer is right on a question that you absolutely 100% certainly know. Mm -hmm. I guess that does deepen your knowledge. Yeah. But it's also using an awful lot of time and burning an awful lot of calories for, you know, um, maybe not a huge benefit. I mean, I think the one good news here is that
1: this student is, uh, erring on the side of reviewing and trying to understand, which I think a lot of students don't do. Yeah, right. Is this Jack or no, is this someone else? No.
0: No, this is not Jack. This the student that I'm talking about on Skype.
1: Oh, yeah. No, this, this is someone else.
0: Yeah, the student he's studying 30 hours a week. Holy smokes. I know. Every time I hear that I just can't believe it. Um I would think that you could get more bang for your buck, you know, and you could also like have a life and get some fresh air and exercise and stuff um by not doing that str- i really don't like the strategy of like i'm going to review every single question on the entire test even if i got it right i'd uh, i maybe some a little bit of that or something but I, I just boy i cannot recommend a lot of that
1: no i mean so uh, yeah all i was saying is he he's, it sounds like it's good that he's reviewing. he just needs to to go push the the scale back you know add more new stuff to this. add
0: more new stuff focus more on your mistakes i think that's going to yeah. tweak it yeah that's going to like result in a little bit um faster progress yeah um here's so here's another question this is also in jack's email and by the way thanks jack beth um camilla thanks everybody who writes into the show we really appreciate it um so this is one i'd never heard before he says I also wanted to ask about the power score analysis of arguments in the logical reasoning Bible, which by the way, I think the power score, logical reasoning Bible is, is good. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit dry maybe, but I think it's pretty fundamentally sound, but I okay. had never heard this before. They say that a test taker should assume that the speaker in an LSAT argument has carefully considered all possible causes and outcomes of a causation statement. What? I know. They go on to say that the conclusion stated on the page was chosen because the speaker believes it is absolutely correct. He says, Oh, okay. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. He says, I guess this makes some sense to me. However, as you guys have discussed, as a test taker, I dis- I try to be very skeptical of the arguments. I guess my question is, can you reconcile the difference between believing that the speaker carefully arrives at a conclusion and believing as a test taker that the speaker is incorrect or has made a poor argument?
1: I, I mean, I could be wrong here, but I think what the PowerScore Bible is trying to say is that when you read the conclusion, the speaker, the person who wrote that conclusion, believes it is 100% true. Which is correct. They think that that is proven, and our job is to say, no, it's not 100% proven because you missed this. The whole thing that they have carefully considered all possible causes and outcomes and so forth, um, maybe they think they have, and maybe that's why they think that their conclusion is 100% true, but that's just all the more reason to go after it because it's not guaranteed to be true
0: yeah i think that the answer here to jack, i think I, I think i get it now and i think the answer is um even idiots can carefully consider things and think that they're right yeah and so just because they've carefully considered it just because they think they're right does not mean that they are right even yeah. if they think they have carefully i guess that maybe they're jack is misunderstanding right The speaker in an LSAT argument has carefully considered all possible causes. Yeah, okay, fine. They think they have. Yeah. But they still could be 100% wrong, and they could be obviously wrong. So
1: I could be misreading Jack, but it sounds like he's thinking that the PowerScore Bible is telling him to give the speaker the benefit of the doubt or to trust the speaker because the speaker has carefully considered all these things. Even if the speaker has carefully considered all these things, they are almost certainly wrong, which is why this is a flaw question and we're going after it.
0: I'm wondering what the point is. And I'd have to read that part of the LR Bible. I mean, I'm sure that they had a, that they had like a thoughtful point that they were making, but I feel like this, they do have the, the possibility of leading people astray here. I mean, Jack seems like he has been led astray here. Um, I certainly don't find it useful when I'm reading the argument to be thinking like, well, you know, they really thought about this before they wrote this. I, that's not my my mindset at all. Is it yours? No, I um, there was something else
1: I, I this is totally unfair because I haven't read it recently, but I do remember reading it some time ago. Uh, they had some comments about causal statements in my I'll just look it up before the next episode, but I think what it said was, when the conclusion says A causes B, the author is thinking that A is the only thing that causes B. And that's not true. If someone says A causes B, you may take issue with that and say that A doesn't cause B. But that statement is not saying that
0: anything else doesn't cause B. No, but but an alternate cause does nonetheless weaken that argument. It does because it
1: undercuts the well, it weakens the idea that that might be the cause. Right. But to say that that author is thinking that, it's that the that's only the cause only necessarily. cause necessarily,
0: right? It's not fair. If that was a flaw question, it would not be fair to say that they have assumed that this is the only cause. Yes, which is sometimes the uh, the wrong which answer. Which could be, a, which promoted. absolutely could be a wrong answer. Yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, this then maybe would be leading the reader astray if it when it, again it says. Assume that the speaker in an LSAT argument has carefully considered all possible causes on a causation statement. Yeah. But no, that does not mean when they say A causes B, that does not mean that they think A is the only cause of B. Yeah. So that would not be right on a flaw question to accuse them of that. Yeah. They, they did not say, unless they specifically said it. Yeah, if they said only. Right. A or whatever, but. Right. But unless they said that, you can't assume that that's what they think. Nonetheless... If you're trying to attack their cause and effect argument if you can come up with an alternate cause you know hey what about this Mm -hmm. if it is indeed true that this other thing has the same effect as what you're trying to talk about then yeah you have subtly undermined their argument and that could be a weakener yeah Um, okay cool um all right i think we got that yeah all right great uh Couple more emails here. These ones kind of overlap. Uh, Chris says, getting into the final stretch before the December 5th exam, I have a few questions. In your years of teaching, is there any pattern you see among students who have experienced test day drops compared to their average practice test scores, like nerves, fundamental misunderstanding of the task, etc.? Like, what is causing people to drop? when they drop and um Courtney says something very similar I got a 160 in June and a 164 in October however when I was preparing for the October test I was scoring much higher when I was doing full practice tests around the low 170s um 164 was quite a surprise do you have any thoughts on how to bring my test day scores up to match my practice scores I'm taking them in similar testing environments, usually proctored by someone else, and of course timed exactly like the official test. What do we think about that? So the question to me sounds like what
1: causes uh, the official test day score drop? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And I guess I would like to clarify first of all what a drop is. Because sometimes I get people who write me and say, hey, I was scoring between 164 and 166, and then I got a 163 on test day. You know, what happened? And I'm thinking, well... Nothing.
0: Nothing happened. Statistically insignificant.
1: Yeah, that's just within your range. Unfortunately, it's on the lower end of that range. Even a 162 is not unsurprising at all. And so I think a lot of people give a lot of weight to one or two points... Right. Where things are going up and down all the time in that range. I
0: feel like most people have a range that's even wider than that. I mean, yeah, I'm never yeah. surprised by three or four or five points one way or the other. That just seems like shit happens kind of thing.
1: Yeah. And if, if it, you know, if normally you're not scoring that low, then it sounds like, well, that's the lower end of your range. So if you took it again, you'd almost certainly go up uh, just by sheer luck of, you know, things going up and down. Yeah. But, If you do have a significant drop, at least in my experience, it feels like people kind of have the same story. They were really nervous the night before. They had trouble sleeping. Um, When they got there, they rushed through a lot of questions precisely because they were nervous. They didn't think they could finish or they weren't really thinking about what they were doing. They were thinking about the whole test itself and the fact that it's official. Um, It seems to me like people get thrown off by... The, I think things that they're attributing to the test that are not really there. Oh, this is real, so somehow it's different. This is real, I need to do my best, and then they end up doing things differently than what they've been doing, and that's why they do worse than what they've been doing.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, I do think people, for whatever reason, they do bizarre, weird, different things on the actual day. And that, that can be a real problem. I mean, if you're not already using bubble sheets when you do your practice tests, you should definitely use a bubble sheet on your practice tests because you're going to mm-hmm. have to do that on the real thing. That's yeah. just an example of like a subtle little different thing. Um, I see students using mechanical pencils on the practice tests mm-hmm. and not to be like a stickler about it, but you're not going to use a mechanical pencil on the real thing. Yeah. And... Why would you do anything different if you could, if you could control it and do the same thing on your practice test as you're doing on the actual day? Well, then why wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, time same of day. Same goes for
1: pens, by the way. People love pens because they hate pencils, and I understand that. But you, you, <laughs> pens are fundamentally different than pencils. You can erase stuff if yeah. you want to change your diagram. I mean, these are small things, scratch but I think paper? the bigger thing is- I see
0: people using scratch paper. What, what, are, what are you doing? You, know, you don't yeah, have scratch paper on the test. I, I'm a little guilty of that because
1: sometimes what happens is I tell people to do the games, or if they want to, to do them on scratch paper so they can do them again later without seeing notes. See. yeah. But uh-huh. I do warn them. I say, hey, look, this cannot happen on test day, so you may want to practice some on Saturday
0: without the scratch paper
1: so you can feel what it's exactly like.
0: When they sit for the real test. Yeah. yeah.
1: But I think going fast... Wouldn't you say like that's the number one response to being nervous, and that Rushing. is, yeah, a huge. I mean, that's the thing. Totally. That if thinking else that we nothing, but something, it would be stop going so fast. Yeah,
0: totally. Um, that's a. It makes me think of uh, public speaking. Isn't mm-hmm. that like the number one flaw that people have? Like people who are nervous about public speaking, they'll yeah. they'll get up there and then they'll just like rush through everything. They're just, they're, they're so nervous that they just gotta get to the next thing, gotta get to the next thing. And um, yeah, I, I I hear people who report back after the test that they finished early and they mm. like aren't used to finishing early. Yeah. And then I'm almost always like, oh, you you didn't do very well, like you tanked it, I'm sorry. Finishing yeah. early is like the worst thing you can possibly do because it indicates that you just skimmed the surface, you know, mm-hmm. you bounced right off the surface of those questions and weren't really digging in. Um, yeah. My, you know, my, uh, I've said this before, right. My strategy for that is like to make sure that I'm going calmly and carefully, I will very mm-hmm. frequently, if the proctor says, start, I just won't start. I'll like look around the room mm-hmm. and, yeah. and, you know, do a little stretching, um, untie my shoe and retie it. Yeah. And, and sort of like, just as a reminder of, of like the one worst thing I could possibly do is go too fast. So I'm going to slow my roll here and make sure that when I look at the question, I'm going to be calmly, carefully answering it correctly. Um, So, yeah, I think that the pressure gets to people. I also think that people just it's human nature, right? People try to shoot for too much. They they get in there. They get greedy, essentially. Yeah, they get in there on the day of the test. And they're thinking, well, my practice test average was 163, and that's pretty solid, and I guess I'd be happy with a 163, but boy, I would really like a 167, or boy, I would really like that 170. Mm-hmm. And then they, re- in order to get a 170, they think they need to finish, whereas to get a 163, you clearly don't need to finish.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And they think they need to finish to get that 170, so then they try to finish, and then it's like, oh, next thing you know, they got a 154. Yeah, because they just bit off more than they could chew. Yeah, I think that's a big problem on the day of the test.
1: I I really like the idea of not doing something right at the beginning. Um, Have I talked about taking a deep breath before? No, but I like that idea. Well, the I read this study like a year ago or six months ago that said that when you take a deep breath that within one to two seconds, blood in your brain is redirected from the amygdala, which is apparently the emotional center or something like that, to your prefrontal cortex because you're sending a signal to your brain that you're not in a Mm. stress situation. Mm -hmm. And so just taking that deep breath can, has a physiological effect on it like changes literally what's happening in your head it's not something that's just like oh i i did this like eastern you know philosophical thing of taking a deep breath like it, no it actually changes something in your yeah, brain yeah
0: that you can control your body with your mind and you can also control your mind with your body and yeah. so that decision to to you know to take that deep breath you're doing something to your body that then is going to have this effect back on your mind. Um, yeah. Now, yeah, that is that is really interesting. I should start doing that when I like do sections in class. I should start. I should start doing like a, you know, not to be too like mystical yoga man <laughs> or anything, but to just say like, hey, everybody, can we please like before we do this, you know, everybody take a deep breath. hmm And yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I, I that I, I think that could be really helpful for people um anything else about test day drops i i guess i have a couple i have a couple more one is the expectation that you're going to do worse on the test can certainly make you do worse on the test Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. there is this myth out there that like the typical person goes down a few points on their actual test i think that's bullshit i don't know where that comes from that probably comes from people being like my best practice test score was 170 and i only got a 167 so i'm disappointed yeah, um, the, you know yeah. that's not the average of your last five practice tests. That's your best test you ever had. So I think sometimes people think they dropped down when they in fact did not drop down. Yeah, they're they're
1: they expect the highest score they ever got, right?
0: Which is unreasonable, right? I mean, and it's human nature. I'm not trying to beat yeah. anybody up. I understand why people feel that way. Um, another reason why people sometimes do worse on the day of the test. Is these fucking proctors. I can't I keep hearing stories. I was working with a student yesterday about proctors in section one, which was reading comprehension, and in section one, the proctors started the timer and then immediately just started having a conversation in the front of the room between between themselves.
1: I just I heard something very similar. Someone was uh like texting with someone but it had the noise on <laughs> the keyboard
0: <I'm... laughs> click 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 yeah it's oh, ridiculous God damn it yeah i mean i understand that the proctors only work four days a year you know this is not like <laughs> a um rocket scientist kind of a job this is a part-time job it's a college student it's a retired person it's a whatever and i, I get it that these are not like highly trained um ninja pro- you know proctors i get yeah. that but um, I've heard so many stories. I, I, maybe LSAC training of the proctors is uh, has, is slipping or something. But yeah, this student, um, she, the proctors are chat, you know, whispered, right? <laughs> but this testing room is like silent, and so <laughs> yeah, the whispered conversation congress- is probably worse. You. Yes, it'd be better if they just were straight up, just like, hey, so what are you gonna get a burger for lunch or what? That'd probably be better instead they're up there like whispering to each other and this student um she had to raise her hand because you know she doesn't want to like get a violation by like speaking during the test yeah so which probably is a mistake she probably should have just said hey you mind
1: hey we're trying to
0: take a test here i don't know if you guys noticed um she had to raise her hand and get the attention of another proctor And then the other proctor comes over and then she says, do you think you could tell them not to talk during the, you know, and then finally she gets them shut up. And meanwhile, she misses half of the questions on the first reading comprehension passage, which is just like such a heartbreak that that's that sucks. So, um, hey, LSAT proctors, get your shit together. Shut up. You're getting paid. All you have to do is sit there and, you know, do your emailing or whatever you want to do. You do not need to be talking. You also don't need to be walking around the room with really loud shoes. Um, you also don't need to be hovering right over people's shoulder, like getting in their personal space. I've heard so many stories of the proctors just like fucking everything up. Um, yeah, anyway. So here's
1: Andy. He wrote on our uh, blog. Did you see this? Under uh, I don't know. Him? Remind me. Okay, so he just just a couple days ago, he said, My October Elsa had a similar issue to the second one you discussed. Proctor called five minutes left at 25 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And again at 30
0: minutes. <laughs> so two five-minute warnings.
1: Yeah, two five-minute warnings. The issue was is that it wasn't a comprehension section. It was a game section. And the, although I was pretty much exactly on schedule, eight questions, a game and a half left, The false call forced me to speed up and make educated guesses on the last questions instead of working them out to a logical certainty. So Andy says he missed
0: only one question before that, but seven of the final eight. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's too bad. I mean, this is one of the reasons why they let you take it three times, I guess, you know, but it, it does seem like when the proctors have only one job, um... They maybe could do that job better. It also strikes me that it would be really easy for them to use like a, a timing app, mm-hmm. right? Where they have their official LSAC, uh, whatever, Proctor app. Yeah. And it's got a speaker on there. And they just hit go. And then the thing gives the five-minute warning without fucking it up. But Well, here's the whatever. other
1: thing is, um, you know, the show Suits? Yeah. They messed this up. They... Put a scene in there where someone is—he's taking the LSAT for someone else, of course, which is great. Yeah. And um, they put on a big television flat screen, three hours, and then it just started counting down. Oh. <laughs> I was like, dude, this is a show about law. Like, you can't talk to one person who's taken the LSAT before and just ask them how it's proctored. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Hollywood. Well, I mean, I watched one episode of that show and I hated it. I, I people always are like, "Dude, do you watch Suits? I bet you'd love it." And I, I watched it and I was like, "This is garbage." For one, this is not at all what lawyers do. This is not has nothing to do with what lawyering is like. If you think that you're gonna be one of these people, you are not gonna be one of these people at all. Um, I hate lawyer shows where they make it like super romanticized, you know, and make these people look all flashy and cool and stuff. It's just like uh no 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 yeah well anyways
1: they could take the uh um they could take that idea just put a flat screen up there and then have the the clock do it all i don't know
0: because i'm i am tired of hearing these stories about the proctors not doing it right and being annoying and especially you know if they're when the proctor is the loudest thing in the room when the proctor is the distraction in the room i mean that's really that's really gross come on guys yeah come on um i and that said i look forward to hearing more of these stories because they are kind of delightful to me because i like getting pissed off and yelling about things (laughs) um okay let me think i think we're about winding down uh let's see chris had a couple more questions he's asking about whether he should drill specific question types he says i'm taking three practice tests a week one on monday one on thursday And then the third, he breaks up into four questions, or four sections, and he does those on the other days. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the time, he spends reviewing these exams thoroughly. That's pretty good. That's a lot of work. Man, three full tests a week plus review. That's got to be, what, 15, 20 hours of, of study a week, probably? Sure. He says, I'm wondering if I should cut one of these days to focus on drilling specific types... Or do you guys believe that in taking practice exams and sections, I'll eventually start to see the patterns that will help me strengthen the gaps in my reasoning and understanding? I don't think we should spend too much time on this because I do believe we've talked about this before.
1: Yeah, I mean, my quick answer would be, I would focus on drilling specific types if you know that you really suffer in a necessary assumption question or something like that. So doing several of those for a specific reason, I wouldn't just do specific types just for the sake of doing types. If if he wants to do some sort of drilling, though, I would suggest um, doing harder questions. If he really is scoring in the high 160s or so or mid 160s, I guess, uh, because those are the questions he's typically getting wrong in the sections. So he still needs to do a lot of full-length sections, but um, to sort of more effectively use his time, go and do a set of hard, random questions, not necessarily necessary assumption or strengthen or whatever. Just do hard questions so he can sort of cut to the chase. Yeah. That's what I, I think.
0: Yeah, if you did nothing but just mixed sections, I would never complain about that. I mean, I think mm-hmm. mixed sections are the foundation. That's that's really the, what the test is all about, is doing mixed sections and identifying the question type as you go and answering the yeah. question. Um, so... I, I'm fine with his existing practice schedule. He does say he, another question. He says, from your years of teaching LSAT, what would you say helped students break from the low 160s to the high 160s or to 170 plus? Um, he's averaging between 161 and 164. Mm, and mm-hmm. he wants to know, you know, basically, how do I get out of that? How do I get to 170? And in line with his question about drilling question types, one thing that is really really common for students who are trying to make it to that next plateau and I'm, I'm talking specifically about people that are already over 160 and are trying to get to 165 or you're at 165 and you're trying to get to 170. um can you tell in a heartbeat can you tell me the difference between a sufficient assumption question and a necessary assumption question mm. because mm-hmm. i i really frequently find that even high scorers can't comfortably answer that question Yeah. And I think that that can be, you know, the difference by the time you get to the late teens, early 20s in a logical reasoning section, they are going to be asking you questions where you have to know the difference between those two question types in order to get the question right. Yeah. And also, you can save a lot of time, especially if it's a sufficient assumption question. You can save a lot of time by just having sufficient assumption questions nailed down that, like, hey, this is actually a pretty easy type of question. Mm -hmm. So I might say, He should diagnose himself on that. You know, Mm -hmm. if he's already rock solid on that, great. But if he's not rock solid on that, that is the kind of thing that gets people from 165 to 170 when they actually finally master that. So then I might say, okay, go drill that until you're sure you've got it. But then, yeah, pretty quickly go back to um, just doing mixed sections. At least that's what I would say.
1: I would, I guess the one thing is if he is concerned about specific types, he could try to figure out what types he's struggling with. By putting his test scores into the the score tracker that I have which is just on strategyprep.com forward slash tracker you have to put in a few tests to really start to see a pattern but you could do that
0: yeah absolutely that would be a way of diagnosing it and if he notices that he's missing a whole bunch of sufficient assumption or a whole bunch of necessary assumption or a whole bunch of any other type then he could absolutely go find some resource to help him drill that type so yeah that's a good that's a good suggestion What is it again, strategyprep.com forward slash tracker? Yep, that's right. Um, One last question here from Courtney. Again, this is something that we have, I think, talked about before, so we can just um, touch it quickly. Um, Courtney says, also, I'm at the point now where I've reviewed so much LSAT content that I have hardly any tests left besides the very early ones that I have not reviewed. I know in some ways that's good because it means I'm pretty darn familiar with the material, but I don't really know how to study effectively for the next month for my last test. Any suggestions? Thanks so much, Courtney. This is a common issue that we hear, um, I guess, particularly at this time of year when people are, uh, a lot of people are, you know, taking the test for the third time, third and final time. They've done a lot of prep, they've done all the recent tests, like, you know, everything from prep test 30 until prep test 76 and they want to know um, how to study. What, What do we think?
1: Well, I guess I'd be curious. She said she doesn't have any tests left except for the very early ones. I wonder what she means by that. Has she just taken those tests once? Sometimes people have taken tests twice before and they've taken them very recently. In that case, I'd be kind of leaning towards some earlier tests to get exposure to new questions although it depends on how old she's talking about. Um, if she's taken these tests before, but it's been a while, I'd say take them again.
0: Um, yeah, yeah. And you, you always say, hey, are you getting 180 on this test when you retake it? Yeah. Because if you're not, then there's something there that maybe you don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's anything at all wrong with redoing if you were going to redo tests, I would probably say, well, well then let's redo the, most, the very most recent ones if you haven't, right? Because those yeah. are the most um, like the tests that you're going to see in December. Yeah, I agree. With regard to the very old tests, I mean, I just don't look at them very often, do you?
1: No. I mean, if we're talking very old, like 1 through 19, I think those are... The, the, the. It wasn't standardized as much, and so the wording is a little strange. Sometimes you get questions that are strange to sort of throw people off. The logic is still sound.
0: I feel like, but I do feel like there's a a difference. And there are certainly some questions that are exactly like what you would see today.
1: Oh, for sure.
0: Oh, yeah. There are there are are logic games. There are like iconic logic games from some of those tests where it's just like, oh yeah, this one is a classic right here, and this is. Do you see what they did here? Like, they've been doing that ever since. Do you see what they yep. did here? They've been doing that ever since. So I would... I guess maybe I would just say take all of those... If you're going to do those, do it with, like, a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. Where you just... I would maybe be a little less sticky about requiring myself to 100% understand every question when I'm reviewing it. Yeah, Because there, there very likely could be some stuff in there that's just kind of bizarre. If you're looking at a logic game from prep test seven and it seems like super hard and weird yeah i mean maybe that's not the one to really spend a whole bunch of time on Mm -hmm. but you Mm -hmm. will see games that look a lot like the games today and in that case like yeah great that's of course it's great that you're doing that
1: yeah i mean if by old she means 29 to 38 that's definitely a lot more consistent what's, with what's going on now. And if she's talking about 39 to 51, the sort of missed tests, she might not have taken any of those just because
0: they're hard to get your hands on. That's true, yeah. Tests 39 to 51 uh, are, are definitely um, definitely good ones to do, and, and you're right, a lot of people have missed those. Um, speaking of prep tests 39 through 51, the my Logic Games book, I, I do have a, a PDF of that now, um, awesome and, and I'm, I'm looking well, of a draft of it and I am looking for feedback so if people want to um, help me out you can email me Nathan at foxlsat.com and I'll talk to you about how I can get you some of that book um, if you would uh, like to look at it in exchange for giving me um, edits and feedback and all that kind of stuff I'm still shooting for getting that out by the end of the year so
1: awesome Knocking on that's wood. cool
0: yeah um, Cool. Anything else we need to add? No, that's it. All right, dude. Uh, this was great, and uh, we will be back next time.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks. So uh, Twitter, by the way, is getting... Oh, yeah. Sorry, I guess there is something to add. Twitter, we're having more followers. I think we've doubled from 6 to, like, 18. Nice. People Actually, are... I have no idea. Let me see here. But I Do, get, do you get those emails when people...
0: I do. I get excited when when people when people follow. I actually don't care when people follow me because I I just don't really use it that much. But when um when people follow thinking Elsat, it makes me happy. So um yeah, follow us. Retweet everything we say, and um yeah, we'll make something. Everything we say. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's all gospel. But no, we'll we'll make something out of that uh, Twitter feed. You can absolutely send us questions via that Twitter feed, by the way, and we will put it into our uh, agenda for a future show.
1: Yeah, cool.
0: Awesome. All right, talk to you next time. Hey, we're coming up on episode 50, dude. Are we going to have like a party or something? Oh, yeah, for sure. Really? Are you <laughs> yeah. going to crack a beer? No, you're not.
1: No, probably not.
0: Um... I could crack a root beer. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I don't know, Ben. You might get a little too frisky if we do that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I go over the edge. Yeah. I did start rock climbing recently. Whoa. Wow. That's yeah. pretty
0: crazy. Wow. How's that going for you?
1: Uh, it's really tiring on my fingers. My fingers <laughs> are killing me. Yeah,
0: yeah, the one or two times that I've done any rock climbing at all, I've been like the only thing I can think of is how weak my hands are. Just total just terribly zero hand strength. Yeah. I wonder if you get over that quickly and then other parts of your body start to be the limiting factor. For me it was always just the ability to even hold myself on the wall. Yeah. Where do you go? Indoor, outdoor? Indoor, yeah. Oh, cool. You got the kids doing that? I bet you do, huh?
1: Yeah. Yeah, in fact, the youngest one is who's uh 3 is sort of a natural, which is surprising. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I guess it's not I mean, anyone can be a natural, but he's 3 and he'll just like climb up I think he's young enough that he doesn't really have any fear of what's going on. So, he just kind of
0: keeps going. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That that is awesome. And then the how old is your oldest? 11. Can he he like belay you and everything yet or not not quite?
1: No, so we just started like this oh, weekend and oh, so we okay. have to get uh, approved for that. But what we did was uh bouldering and then you can go up to a certain like height without a harness cool is it did your wife go too? yeah it was her idea so that's, oh, what, wow. that's, that's just the only reason i've done anything exciting recently that is exciting <laughs> wow cool otherwise i just do outside all day <laughs> yeah.
0: okay well that's i uh, think about enough of us um yeah yeah all right we will uh, talk to you guys next time thanks for listening
1: Cool. yeah see you later